Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone. And if you ever wondered if the things you do or think matter, well, you're going to want to listen to this show. My guest today is Karen O'Brien. She's a professor of sociology and human geography at the University of Oslo. She's an internationally recognized expert on climate change and society, focusing on themes such as climate change impacts, vulnerability, adaptation, including how climate change interacts with globalization processes and the implications for human security. Karen is interested in how transdisciplinary and integral approaches to global change research can contribute to a better understanding of how societies both create and respond to change, and particularly the role of beliefs, values, and the worldview in transformations to sustainability. She is passionate about what potential there is in quantum social theory and the implications for climate change responses. Karen, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here again and talk to you, Michael. You probably noticed we have a new name. Maybe in honor of you, We Earth Radio at West Conversations when we were on the last time. So I love your new book. I'm so excited about it. I want everyone to read it. And I really like the title of the book. I just I sat with that title and I thought, you matter more than you think. Because it struck me that reading your book, how important that word matter is in this case that by our thoughts, our beliefs, our actions, that we can not only change the mental, physical, and seemingly solid world of our objective reality, that anything that we actually look at from a quantum perspective relates to matter and manifestation. So thank you for the great title and great book. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks. I I think that that dual meaning of matter as both substance and significance, I think it works really well in English and, um, and I think it gets to the heart of the matter. Does it work in other languages as well? I don't think it, it does in so many because significance is more, you know, like meaningfulness. And, right. and But what I'm looking at is like mind, matter and meaning all together. So maybe translators have a good way of, of um, putting it. Well, let's just jump in and start about how can mattering translate into, this is a big question, large-scale systems change? You don't have to answer it all. That would take an hour. But just give, just give us a wide idea how mattering translates into large-scale systems change. Yeah, that's really the basis of the book because I think right now many people don't feel like they matter. They feel like, oh, gosh, I'm very insignificant. I can't actually have an impact on the world that makes any real difference. And what I'm trying to look at in this, and this book is really an ongoing inquiry, is to think about how our mattering, both in terms of significance and substance, you know, how we actually show up, how we 
um, create different structures and systems, how that has an impact at scale that is beyond what we actually think. You know, we often think it's just like, I, this is what I do in my household or my community or my city or my country, but we don't actually see that we are actually changing relationships and shifting patterns. And that mattering actually ripples across, you know, much um, non-locally in ways that we cannot see. And to me, that I think is much more empowering when we start to think about um, how we matter, literally. Um, yeah, you know, as a therapist, so many people that I work with is a feeling of nothing I do makes any difference and I don't belong. And this this overwhelming and growing, especially with COVID, sense of separate. I'm just another object in a world of objects. And the last time that we talked about climate change, which of course you're a climate scientist, the last time we talked, you talked about, well, Climate change is not just a technological or a political issue, which of course those things are important, but ultimately it's a relationship issue. That so impacted my way of thinking and shifting my view. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that perspective and that shift in perspective. Yeah, to me, that's a very important shift in perspective because often we think of climate change as an environmental problem and we focus on the technical and behavioral changes that are needed or the political you know, systems changes and structural changes. But, but when you get to the heart of it, it really is a relationship issue. It's how I relate to myself, to others, to nature, to um, the future, to change itself. And when we start to see it from a relational perspective, it suddenly puts us in um, at the center of it because when we change ourselves, we actually influence relationships and we can actually influence um, systems and, and, um, and the future, et cetera. So I think it's a much more empowering way of looking at um, climate change, but also more accurate because you know, systems are relationships among different um, parts to form a whole. And it's how we see those systems and how we see ourselves in relation to those systems that actually impacts um, what we do, how we do it, and whether we actually think we are making a difference. Yeah, and the whole area of social systems is transforming. You know, I had Alex uh, Rent on talking about so uh, quantum social change and how that relates to classical uh, social change structures. And maybe you can tell a little bit about how you see quantum social change uh, transforming our worldview about climate and how we can relate to climate change. Yeah, and that's where I think, you know, I came across Alex Wentz's quantum social theory um, more than a decade ago, and it really got me thinking about like, okay, what does this actually mean for collective action um, regarding not just climate change, but um, many global environmental problems and complex challenges. And, um, and I think that for me, it, um, it puts us beyond this very like a linear atomistic reductionistic deterministic view of ourselves in the world, the things in space that we have to just really work to get lots of people and lots of action on the ground to think about like, wow, small changes can make a really big difference. And that idea behind um, quantum social science um, in the core is entanglement. And of course, in quantum physics, it's at the subatomic, atomic, and molecular levels. But 
in quantum social theory and in um, Karen Barad's agential realism, it really is, it's, it's, a, it's inherent to us. It's part of our language, it's part of our communications, it's part of a shared context. And, and I think about, um, you know, from the perspective of climate change, that we are dramatically underestimating our collective capacity for social change by looking at it in such a very classical, reductionistic, mechanistic manner. And when you start to shift that narrative towards um, a quantum, whether you're looking at um, you know, quantum social science as a, um, as a metaphor or as its methods or in terms of the meanings, it's, it really adds to our understanding of social change. Yeah. Let's look at quantum social change for the opportunity, you said collective, but it's individual too, of transforming society. How does that relate to the, to the rate of change? Because time is really a huge issue right now that, that you know, we got one decade left or we're all going to, you know, be gone. Scale and the depth needed to create the kind of ethical and equitable and sustainable lifestyle and culture that's needed in order to make the changes, which, you know, we have the solutions, it's just how do we make the changes? Mm -hmm. And that's really, um, I think Michael, you kind of pointed to the starting point of this book is like, you know, how do we transform at the rate, depth, um, speed and um, scale that is called for at this time. And, and I start the book just with reflections on the decade that matters. And we are in a period where we actually, you know, the science is very clear that we have um, a very small window of opportunity to avoid um, irreversible, um, very dangerous climate change. And many would say that we're beyond certain tipping points. And, that we, and of course, we will experience losses. And as we talked about last time, we have to adapt to some of these changes. But, but this idea that, um, that change takes a long time, we, we tend to kind of put, you know, whether it's the sustainable development goals or now the, um, you know, meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement, we tend to just throw off our, um, you know, like change into the future as of 2030, 2040, 2050, rather than bringing it right here to right now. And so we practice a politics of never getting there and that we actually are always thinking that, okay, then we'll change, then we'll change, rather than saying, okay, what do we do right here and right now? And when we look at social change as a nonlinear process, it's based on our oneness and, um, and connections, then we start to see that it can happen a lot faster than we think. And, and I think that that to me holds a lot of promise because it's not that, um, you know, we sometimes we just think like, wow, there's a lot of lethargy in the system. There's a lot of inertia. How are we ever going to change these enormous systems, all these vested interests, power structures, et cetera. And, um, and that it can just put you on a trajectory where you just um, like um, extrapolate the past into the future and say game over. And what I think is important to do is to, you know, challenge those, um, some of those assumptions about change. And that's what quantum physics has been doing. That's what quantum social science does. It says, wait a minute, you know, what if actually we brought that future that we desire to right here and right now and almost use that then to, um, to think about how do we generate those results now? And, um, and I think it can really be empowering, not, not just for individuals, but individuals as collectives. And that to me, that's, um, the nuance that the I and the we are are one 
is, is, is really an important part of quantum social change. Absolutely. You know, that feeling that I don't make a difference and the idea that, well, postponing till some other better time doesn't take into account that everything we do is a choice and every choice we make makes an impact. And in your book, you talk about individual change is collective change. And that's hard for people to get their mind wrap around. But, you know, from that lens, from that picture, then the potential for change in systems at a global scale takes on a completely different opportunity and possibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's like when we start to get that we are always, you know, part of a whole, that when one part, like the whole parts, <laughs> and that that idea, like, because we tend to think of ourselves still as separate. And our language, it, we don't even have the language to actually talk about that, um, those relationships in a in a way that captures the entanglement, the intra connections, uh, you know, within one whole system. That's the basis of the Newtonian Cartesian. We're objects in a world of objects. We're separate mm -hmm. and our language is separate and our way of interacting in the world is separate. And just to go back to the time thing, I was just, you know, this whole view of time that we have from the classical view of time from past, you know, to future, the linear time to a nonlinear quantum view, how does looking at time from a new perspective change, change the way we view climate change too? Yeah, um, well, I think that there, quantum physics tells us so many different things about time, but, I, but part of it to me, and I, in the original um, draft of the book that I released um, in June 2020, I had a chapter called Time Matters. And, um, and in that it was, you know, I realized that there's a lot there that you could really go into the nature of time. And, um, but I think that where it really pulls us to um, in a very simple way is almost like in a process um, um, philosophy, that the idea that, that, that we are mattering in the moment, now and now and now and now and now, and that, um, and that those changes actually are pushing us onto a different trajectory um, in that moment. And it's not just us as individuals, but us, as, you know, as a, as a collective. And that nonlinearity, it's, you know, I think people aren't really capturing this idea of, um, you know, like of the potentiality that exists um, as more and more people follow, um, you know, like just start to think differently, act differently and be differently. And, um, and the, the idea of, um, you know, like, I guess it's just like how things spread, um, not in a very, not in this classical, I'm going to influence you, but just through, you know, these, you know, by the nature of shared values and um, shared ideas and shared meaning making. You know, I think that that, that it's that the whole concept of potentiality has a lot in it. And that I think is something that in a deterministic world, we, we really don't, um, you know, we underestimate that. And as a result, we end up like in the object-oriented wor world, we're constantly trying to change others <laughs> and to convince other people that they need to change, turning people into objects rather than like kind of activating you know, people as subjects of change. And we know how people love to be changed by others. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> Those talk are about experiments it. Talk about a stalemate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I always tell people in my courses that if you have good advice for someone, you should take it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think many people have learned that you know, like when like trying trying to change others um, doesn't work, and yet that's a lot of the um, environmental movement is really kind of pointing fingers and saying you need to change, you need to do right. this, and and it, it it unfortunately tends to backfire. You know, we're talking about classical versus uh, quantum, but I've been teaching mystical arts for years. And nothing in quantum is inconsistent with many of the indigenous and earlier views of relationship to the world and the interdependency. You know, we talk about quantum indeterminacy and, and you know, how that situates us. But, you know, the Greeks talked about Kairos and Kronos, you know, two completely different perspectives on time. You know, one, of course, the chronological, but the other is, you know, emergent and uh, when the time is right, when the fruit is ripe for picking, you know, kind of thing. So, you know, we're, we're talking, if, if sometimes people hear about quantum perspectives and they, they get all like, oh, well, and I don't understand that, or it's too difficult, or yeah, but that's only on the micro level, that doesn't happen on the macro level. And yet it has been for a long time. So- Absolutely. Yeah, but, yeah, but I think that you're right about that. You're bringing up another point that's that's really important, and it's I've never in my 76 years lived in a world that's felt so polarized, so divisive, so much anger, so much hatred, so much blame, so much finger pointing. How can quantum social change help to bring us together in common unity or community? Mm -hmm. I like that common unity or community is really a nice way to look at it. And, and when you start to like, you know, it gets into um, di different ideas of like, where do you draw the line between us and other? <laughs> and, and it's so easy for us constantly to be othering anything, you know, anyone who doesn't agree with, uh, um, with us or anything that there, there's a, like a, just a, a very, um, an innate tendency to, um, to move towards like this, um, othering in a classical worldview where we see ourselves as separate. Um, from that quantum perspective, which is a relational worldview, which is very much consistent with um, indigenous worldviews and wisdom traditions. And, and I think that that's where the, um, you know, like that, you know, that power lies, because there's nothing new in it, yet it's just taking a different language, it's putting into like the, the physics and, and and where you know Western worldview, the Newtonian worldview, has had a lot of power. It has led to a colonial mentality. It has led to um, a lot of oppression. Um, the quantum worldview is saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! We are actually connected. We are entangled," and um, and it it starts to um, almost dissolve those um, you know a lot of the the rationales um, of you know thinking of the, of in terms of hierarchies and thinking of um, some people as um, expendable or dispensable or the dehumanization of people and i think in a in this a, a vibrant quantum world both humans and non-humans all matter and to me that um it asks us to ask different questions of um like you know often i've you know my first reaction is always like oh it's like how do i connect to these people or those others and everything and then i remember like oh 
actually what I'm saying is that we are connected. And how do I touch that place of coherence that, you know, like sh the shared values, whether it's equity, compassion, dignity, um, things that we, that all, all of us share. And, um, I, you know, to me that it opens up a space of possibility for connecting. But again, it's not easy because we're almost trained to, um, you know, to be in this very classical um, world of othering. Yeah. So to me, it takes a lot of practice. Yeah. You know, I was, I was just thinking as you were talking that um, one of the issues is that we, we live inside of a story a narrative, our ego, we could call it, or many names for it, but basically a narrative. And the story, it's not, it's not like we're living the story. It's like the story is living us. And the story is, a fa is fabricated by our beliefs, our assumptions, our familial, ancestral, cultural patterns um, that are all coming from the past. So it's almost as if we're, we've taken the past and and filed it in the future. And we just keep living into this story and it gets more and more massive rather than more and more loose and um, more and more dynamic. Um, so when we talk about uh, entanglement and, and uh, non-locality and this kind of way of seeing the world when we go from, uh, I love that you mentioned Dan's we, and he says, we, Dan, Dan uh, Siegel's we, or you use I, we. Um, talk about how we can actually begin to break down the strongly held beliefs and open ourselves more to, rather than being, a lot of that's about control, rather than being in control to actually cultivate uncertainty and step into uncertainty and mutuality. Hmm. It's a little long question. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I think that like one of the starting points really is to to just be aware of how powerful our beliefs are, whether we're saying I don't believe in climate change or I don't believe that I matter and looking at um, at our beliefs rather than through our beliefs gives us the potential to actually um, like, you know, explore them from different aspects and think, okay, how true is that really? And, and that's, we can take a step back and start to um, see that we are living a story and the story is living us and that, um, and, and to you know, just um, disrupt that story <laughs> for a moment. You said, again, what if I told a different story about myself, about us, about climate change, et cetera, what would that be? And if we actually wrote different stories about the future, and, and I mean that not just writing a story um, physically, but in our heads as we're as we're moving through our days, then you know what what type of how does that open up different spaces and different possibilities for things to emerge? And and to me, going back to your question about time, you know, if we're if we're actually acting in the now with that um, sense of awareness and attention. We, we actually we come from a more generative space than, than a, um, a, a, you know, like a, a space that is just kind of recreating and perpetuating an earlier story. And, you know, looking at what we need to do, certainly, um, you know, there's a lot of momentum in those old stories and a lot of it feels very real, but how do we, how do we switch and step outside of that 
and, um, and switch trajectories. And to me, as a culture, we need to do that with climate change because we've told ourselves lots of stories about energy pricing, you know, different types of interventions. And it's very easy to just skip social change and just jump to technical solutions, geoengineering the atmosphere, or just giving up and saying, you know, we're, you know, game over. And that's very dangerous, I think. And, um, and it also is not looking at that, the, um, the, uh, the world of uncertainty and potentiality that um, quantum social science is describing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this idea of matter, of course, is one of the, the key things. The, the idea, and of course, every chapter you talk about mm -hmm. the different thing that matters, but matter itself, we're talking in the book about new materialism and how that shifts our view of matter as being emergent rather than future uh, uh, in the future. And of course, that would also go along with the quantum view of, of uh, until it's observed, it's either uh, a point or a wave. Uh, and then when we observe it, it changes us. Well, that, that's a huge, under, you know, when you really get that, it's like, wow, I, I, there's a, there's a word, abracadabra. Remember abracadabra when you were a kid? You, abracadabra, you're a rabbit or something. Mm -hmm. Well, you know the genesis of that is no. uh, Aramaic, and it's arakadabra, and it means I create as I speak. Wow. Isn't that beautiful? And that's beautiful. And I think that that also links to then, like, you know, in, in, in like physics, it's the collapse of the wave function into a, a you know, a, deterministic um, like into a particle um, but in if you think of language as entangled we, the, the, the field of um, potentiality collapses through our speech acts as um, and it's like our words are actually creating our stories and um, our stories are creating that material world so it's very um, yeah very relevant to abracadabra <laughs> like, yeah. like that we that we are actually like manifesting and, and I think that that's where we underestimate the potential for um, radical social change. I don't know if you have read John Searle's work on speech acts, you know, the, the five basic speech acts, but I'm just thinking of them now, how um, limited those five are, how you can't get into any kind of implicate order as Bohm would talk about, or any kind of potentiality inside of the limits of the speech acts, you know, um, a request, a promise, a, a assertion, a declaration, I forgot what the other one, you know, there's like five basic speech acts there, but they're, they're like containers, you know, mm -hmm. that bind us in a way. So how do we, how do we then think out of the, the, the beliefs and the paradigms, we didn't talk about paradigms yet, how paradigms shape the, the definition of the world and language is, is the, is the need of a paradigm. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that that's um, the starting point really then is to, to get out of those, like those little boxes or containers that we're put into is to ask questions and inquiry really opens, you know, what if or why and, and, and that's the nature of science itself <laughs> to, to ask questions about things. And so, and I think it's uh, David Bohm who says, you know, asking the right question is really important. So we need to think about what questions are we asking and what are we missing? 
And a lot of um, what has driven me to actually look at um, quantum social change in relation to climate change is the, this understanding that like in the future, people will look back and, um, and say, what were they thinking back in 2021? And what were the beliefs that were driving society towards this polarization, towards separation, towards um, you know, in, in this way? And, and then, you know, they might just say, wow, they didn't actually see that they were entangled. They didn't actually see that they mattered literally. Um, and, you know, through their speech acts, through their, um, and they just didn't see the possibilities that were right in front of them at that time. And to me, that um, like opening up that um, that space calls for imagination. It calls for creativity. It calls for actually connecting, you know, the head, the heart, the hands, and and, and really embodying um, what we're talking about. So, while in some ways I think of like the my um, experience in writing this book has been very cognitive. <laughs> like, okay, I've got to you know think about this and read and everything. I think it's as much that you know. To, to be able to think about like how are how can we be quantum social change? How can we live it? How do you you know how do you embody a new paradigm rather than just talk about it? Mm -hmm. And that to me is a really important challenge for all of us who are are um, working on issues that seem really overwhelming right now. Yeah, I want to go back to questions because I um, I love that Bohm saying you have to ask the right question. I am more would defer to Rilke of, of asking the question that can't be answered or, or not trying to find the answer to the question, but to leave it open so that it's actually emergent and creative rather than closing. Because when you say, ask a question, my mind, and I think most people's minds go, yeah, and what's the answer going to be? But what if we actually were more living into the question and had a question and purposely brought not knowing to the question, even when we think we know the answer? Mm. Bring that uncertainty in, you know, cultivate the uncertainty. Yeah, I actually think that that's what David Bohm meant. <laughs> it's like asking the right question. I, I'm like sure, I open. suspect it is. <laughs> yeah, you know, keeping it open, keeping it rather than a yes, no, you know, no type of thing, but just to be like, to keep following those threads and really, um, you know, to me, and that's why like an inquiry is never just done. It actually opens up the next question, the next question, the next questions. And so it's really like, okay, you can, like okay, this chapter is done this is uh, or whatever but it, it opens up a whole new you know pages and chapters and um and, and you know, creates a different story so yeah i think the whole idea but the idea of maybe um like keeping the questions coming rather than um than just solidifying you know stop going you know, just saying okay the answer is here i think that could be quite dangerous to, to yeah. just, um you know shut down into this is it there's i can't remember the name of the group but it's they have a way of sitting and asking a question over and over again like who are you and you answer who are you who are you and they go on for hours that way and at some point it kind of takes the mind and goes like that something happens and and you get to i don't know where is where the the power is in that ability to go, I, I have no idea, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's not a bad thing, <laughs> that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is the, the, the quantum 
Bayes, Bayesism? No, that's not the word. Cubism or quantum Bayesianism. Bayesianism. Yeah. Bayesianism. I had trouble saying that. Yeah. So talk about that as, as an example of um, being able to continually update uh, the question and the way we view uh, a problem. Yeah, quantum Bayesianism or cubism is an interpretation of quantum physics that um, that is very much about that, um, that that there's nothing weird about quantum physics. It's really like the collapse of the wave function really comes about as a, um, like what we're what, about our it's about our beliefs and what we're betting on in terms of the future, like in Bayesian Bayesian statistics. So, you know, it's like what is it that is most probable until we have more information and then we change those bets. And so it's, uh, and to me, it's, it's really relevant because it's showing that, you know, we, it, the importance of constantly updating our beliefs and keeping an open mind, um, but also how powerful they, how our, how powerful our collective, our individual and collective beliefs are in actually, you know, um, mattering in creating a, in creating a reality that, um, that matters. And so cubism puts, the scientist or puts people back into the equation and it's um it leads to something called participatory realism in other words we're, we are participating in this universe and it's very much linked to um john archibald wheeler's um ideas um he was a quantum physicist that um, you know had a, an enormous impact on the field and i think that that you know cubism is really an important you know alternative interpretation from the Copenhagen School um, and other other interpretations of multiple um, worlds interpretation, etc. Just to show us that, um, yeah, our beliefs about the nature of reality, our beliefs about the future actually are important and they matter. And, um, and that's where the minute we start to say that, oh, we, you know, we will never bend the curves on greenhouse gas, gases, or we can't avoid this or that, then we actually, um, we limit what we look at and we start to simply adapt to changes rather than thinking creatively about like, well, what are the alternatives? And I'm not saying here that adaptation is not necessary. And I'm not saying here that we're not going to experience losses because, you know, we, we really are at a point where there is dangerous climate change for many people, group species. And we're, we're so you know, nearing tipping points with um, the melting of ice sheets and, and things. So it's, it's not to say, but it's, but it's to recognize that we can do better and that how, you know, our, our bets on the future are actually playing, um, you know, a part of this and um, to question those and say like, you know, yeah, how do we actually generate change? Yeah. I, I think we've said it, but it's, it's something that probably should repeat at least three or four times in this, in this interview. Uh, the idea of outcomes are dependent on the observer, that there's no objective reality. That's hard for people to get that there's no objective reality. And I was thinking about the difference between um, when we're looking at a, an issue or a problem or, you know, a, a, something that's a big threat to us, that when we recognize the observer in there, we shift from reacting to a problem to responding to a problem. To, to uh, I, I think you said about it, it increase. I'm putting words in your mouth. I'm afraid, but but that it increases our sense of 
responsibility and agency, our ability to uh, make change. And it's that space between the, the stimulus and the response gets bigger when you have more possibility, more t- potentiality. Mm. And I think that, that you said that very well. It's uh, the, the idea of um, responsibility, <laughs> you know, like that our ability to actually act in the moment in a way that isn't just repeating past patterns and, um, and you, know, you know, following all previous assumptions and beliefs, but to say like, okay, what does this moment call for from me right here and right now? And to me, that's an enormous space of potential for, um, for stepping outside of, um, of the usual um, story or script and, um, and actually shifting patterns, shifting systems, shifting cultures. And it, it opens up then a, a, like a different way of thinking about um, scaling change. You know, because it was like, we, oh, we're all part of, we're creating these patterns. And so in the last time that we talked, we talked about like connecting the dots and seeing what's going on in this bigger picture. But, but I think this brings us to, you know, how do we actually change those patterns, change those connections? So, you know, in a day, way that, um, you know, moves us in a world where um, all life can thrive. Yeah, yeah. The, the sense that the future is conditional and that we are co-creating. The Buddhists have a wonderful term I, I love, interdependent co-creation, co-arising, interdependently co-arising. That's such a wonderful term, you know, uh, that kind of says everything that we're talking about. Uh, but, but talk about that, that co-creation and how um, we might be able to su- come together and support each other in transcending our strongly held beliefs, ideas, assumptions uh, that are uh, dictating the answers and, and the actions that we're taking. Well, to me, it's the, the, like, sometimes, you know, we all feel like from a very individualistic perspective, like, oh, it's up to me. And and then, and that it's like, we don't actually see that it's up to like, I, we, you know, this connection that we are part of, it's neither the, you know, it's not just the collective out there and it's not just the individuals, but there's a, that, that um, interdependence, the co-arising of it is really where, where the action is at. And that if we minimize and trivialize ourselves in that, then, then we miss that space for actually having those, um, you know, the, the ripple effects across space and time into um, the, like helping that alternative future to co-arise, that, that potential future. And for me, like looking at like the, the climate scenarios over the years, that, they, that the climate modelers were point, kind of pointing to that, okay, there are certain scenarios that would limit warming to below two degrees Celsius, or that would be less dangerous. And then there's ones that are just way, you know, out of what, um, just kind of game over scenarios. And I was very happy. It's like, oh, those are, it's really great to see these scenarios and like, how do we get there? And to me, it's not a question of whether we can, but the how, how do we transform? And I think that that's, it, it brings us exactly to that, that idea of the interdependently co-arising that, you know, that when we make that shift in our thinking and recognize like, you know, that the other is you, <laughs> that we are, that we are, you know, like that 
and other species too, that, that it's, you know, we take a responsibility for the whole and the values that apply to the whole, then, then when, when you act in that way, then you don't create these fragments and these um, like pieces and um, polarizations and polarities and things. You end up, um, end up you know, more aligned. And it doesn't mean that everything has to be the same, but just the, you know, like the, the principles that will get us to sustainability are very, actually quite simple. Yeah, you're reminding me of the book I think you worked on with Paul Hawken, Drawdown, and the 100 Solutions to Climate Change. And when I look at those, those solutions, first of all, they're simple mostly. Secondly, they are value-based. And I think that's a big issue that we need to look at. What are our values? What do, what do we actually believe? Do we, do we believe in equality? Do we believe in you know, healthcare for everyone? Do we believe in uh, honoring uh, the natural world? And do we believe that we're connected and interdependent with the natural world? These kinds of values and beliefs are what's going to allow us to take the actions that will create the cultural movement that we're wanting to awaken in people. Mm. That's very much, you know, a part of quantum social change. It's like, you know, what matters to me and to everyone <laughs> and, you know, like you know, to the whole and the, the values, what, um, what um, Dr. Monica Sharma, who's influenced my work a lot, um, looking at radical transformational leadership, uh, you know, she calls them universal values. They're innate to all of us. You cannot say that you know equity doesn't apply to um, these or those or, or, or them, um, whatever. And so when you work from values that apply to the whole, then it, it's, it gives you like a grounding in that space of coherence. Um, and it, it gives you that, that space of connection and you speak much more powerfully, you act much more powerfully. And, and you, are, you are like in that, entangled space of, of, um, of unity. And I think that to me, if when we, when we bring values in, when we can start to really um, like enter the space of transformation from there, we start to see that like, wow, they're in that political sphere of polarization. There's lots of opportunities for connection or, you know, like, because um, see, for most people, like, yeah, there, I think I used the quote from, um, science writer John Horgan is like humanity's matter that yearns to matter. And I think that we all like everyone wants to be um, like mattering um, to someone. And, and then it comes down to like just love, appreciation, being, you know, seen and acknowledged. And we're living in a society now where so many people, the, the, um, the, the classical paradigm has led to so much like loneliness and um, feeling, you know, feeling like insignificant and, um, it really is, you know, it's a paradigm that is um, literally killing us in terms of, you know, collectively as a planet and looking at, you know, extinction of species and the degradation of ecosystems. And, you know, we're on a trajectory that, that really needs to be shifted. And one of the reasons that I wrote this book was part of my own journey, but to say like, wow, what if we take science seriously and what would we, what would, um, what would it take for us to actually shift from that paradigm and um because you know as you mentioned before this is not new this is you know many relational paradigms have um existed for millennia so 
so how do we take that back and start to relate differently to um, to each other, to ourselves, and to the environment? One of the big issues that I see, particularly as a journalist, is the impact of media. Uh, and you talk about science, but the media has actually turned science into a political issue and is using science from my perspective now around COVID, but has been using it. And people are saying, oh, good, science is back in the White House in the U.S. You know, science is not back in the White House. Um, science is about debate, is about uncertainty, is about skepticism, is about asking questions. Uh, and whatever you believe about COVID right now, questions are not being answered. And the media is pouring fear out. Even Amy Goodman, who I've loved for her tenacity in democracy now, has been one of the biggest purveyors of fear in this pandemic. And, and so, and they're using science to justify things that are, I mean, there are many other places that that can happen. For instance, um, uh, the belief in a technological solution is going to save us, that all of a sudden we'll come up with the right thing in technology and it's going to save us all. So again, we're postponing. So I brought two issues together in there. So I'll stop there before I get on a rant. <laughs> Your thoughts? Yeah. yeah, well, I think that, you know, like, like science is inquiry. Science is looking at, you know, like, what are the patterns? What do we know about this? And, and, and that's where, you know, it's been very interesting to be um, working on climate science for the last um, few decades and looking at like, what do we know? What are we, um, you know, what are we thinking? And, um, and also what are we missing? <laughs> you know, what's missing from, um, from our models, from our picture? And, and also, um, you know, like, what are we, yeah, where are we on the mark and where are we off the mark? And with climate change, I think we um, many people didn't actually foresee the rapidity for which that we would have these felt experiences of um, extreme events. And, um, and yeah, climate change is, is, it seems to be occurring at a much faster rate than um, because of feedbacks, because of things that were not included in the models. But they also the models haven't really included humans as social beings, as you know, the deeper human dimensions either. They have um, pretty much excluded the beliefs, values, and worldviews of people and how they change. And so for me that there's, you know, like science itself is always incomplete. So how can we expand science, open up inquiries and, and ask different questions and the right questions and really, you know, get it so that we, we're not, so it's not as an emotional right, wrong type of thing, but it's that, you know, and getting to the, you know, like what, what is, what is the best understanding of this right here and right now? And, um, and I think that's, it takes, yeah. um, for me, this, you know, like that, that, that we should be um, always asking these questions. And, and I think for, you know, you gave the example of like technology to the rescue. There's a lot of assumptions behind that um, idea that you know, technology is going to save us from climate change, whether it's, whether through adaptation or you know, reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. And, um, and it, you know, to me, just looking at the, the science as a social phenomena <laughs> that it's, it's about, you know, how, how do we actually understand reality? And as this is Carlo Rivelli writes, reality is not what it seems. And so then it's like, well, how do we take that and, um, 
and really get to this idea that oh, social reality may not be what it seems either. And oh, you know, it's just it's it's almost like opening. It, it can take you really like into a swirl of like wonder of going like, what are we doing? What's going on? And what can we do better? And to me, that's the like, and I think that happens for a lot of people working um, on global environmental change. There's there's a um, very much being driven not just by science for itself, but for um, a really you know an understanding of um, you know how do how do we actually create a, a planet that um, is equitable and sustainable and thrivable? That's a good question. <laughs> and one of yeah. the issues I love that you had uh, Christina Bethel do the um, uh, preface, or she did the preface to your your book because I want to bring up trauma because it is, you know, we're swimming in a sea of trauma, individual, collective, familial, ancestral, all of that plays a huge part. And we're all, this is why I work as a trauma therapist, you know, that that's to me, when I first heard uh, really Thomas years ago say, we're swimming in a sea of Tom, I was starting to get really depressed because I've been an active climate activist for a long time. I was starting to get really depressed and thinking, you know, we're, we're screwed, you know. And then when Thomas said, we're swimming in a just that sentence, I went, oh my God, that is the linchpin. If we could handle that, we could reconnect people because the first, the first thing, all of the issues that come up in trauma, separation, number one, when you've got frozen past, you create separation. Uh, our relationship to time, our relationship to connecting, you know, all of these issues that we've talked about, all of them are impacted by this sea of incomplete trauma, including the, the cultural traumas like slavery and uh, dropping bombs on uh, atomic bombs on people and genocide and colonialism, all of these huge things that are there. And we're all impacted. And, it, and it, it's like a wet blanket over people. Even people who said, oh, I didn't have any trauma. No. You live in a, <laughs> a field of trauma. So the antidote to that is community. The antidote to that is going back to where most of our trauma, the majority of it, as she said in the preface, is um, adaptive. It's early um, you know, childhood trauma where you didn't get seen, felt, heard, or you got hurt even worse or damaged at that time and you suppressed a part of your essence. So to get to the value base that's needed to do this, we're gonna to have to look at trauma and the impact of it. Your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, no, I think that, uh, I think you're absolutely right. And it's such an important part that hasn't until recently been ta talked about. And I think Thomas Hubel's work on collective trauma is really important too, because it's, and it, it goes, it's not just about the individual, it's the, it's the I, we, what we share in terms of our um, you know, shared contexts and experiences um, in the past. And to me, it's been, um, you know, it is that like, if we really want to be able to respond fully to the challenges ahead of us, we are going to have to be operating at full, you know, full force, um, you know, from a space of um, where we are, um, where we don't have the, the frozen parts, where we're not like, you know, keeping things down and 
and to me it's a you know it is really about healing and i think when we talk about like healing the planet we have to heal ourselves and it, it is the same thing and you know like what we're we're collectively traumatizing ourselves almost like um on purpose now with climate change you know we are the ones that are contributing to the risk and to the vulnerability and to um you know very unequal outcomes and things so we're perpetuating the same patterns that have created trauma and conditioned um, um like traumatic experiences um for a long long time and going back to you know what can we do about it right here and now and that is the the disrupting those patterns and and so there's a the healing element to it and it's like opening up that space of um of potentiality where we are we are you know we're not our traumas but we have to actually look at them mm. well karen o'brien there's so much more to talk about that we need to get into we're gonna have to do another show to to do an uh, an addendum to this because there's there's a lot more but i think it would be nice if you could talk about some of the practices, the practical everyday things that people could do to shift their, their thinking from an I-me world to an I-we world and to, you know, an us world. Um, and what are some of the practices that you do and that you see that we can do that can really open us up to a more quantum perspective, a more uh, interdependent perspective on our relationship to ourselves and the world and nature? Um, that's a great question. And I think there are like hundreds of practices that have been done. You know, everyone has their own thing, whether, you know, it's meditation or drawing or um, skiing or, or, or whatever, but it's really the quality that we show up that actually influences, you know, whether that has any type of, uh, um, uh, creates any shift in our mindset. If we show up with a, you know, kind of like a competitive, I'm going to do this type of thing, we're still in that same mindset. And so, um, you know, to get at, to, you know, I think there's just a lot of different ways that we can um, open up that space. And it's often through doing things that we love or doing things that are, are meaningful to us. Um, and yet there's things that just really do need practice. And, you know, I often, do get overwhelmed by the, um, like the, the gravity of climate change when I, when I read um, you know, about what's you know, the latest um, reports on you know, Antarctica or things. And, and to me, like just to constantly go back to um, like meditation or to um, yoga or to going for long walks and things and just kind of grounding myself is, um, you know, is essential. And so um, come January, I'm signed up for the Postman meditation retreat. Yay. Just to actually take that little break from it and, and things. But, but other people might want to do, you know, dance or um, you know, like just, um, yeah, there's so many different ways of approaching it. But I think that we have to also like to keep in mind that it's like to, to keep the, like the joy in life and to be able to see the possibility and potentiality in every moment. It's, it's like, to me, that's it's such an essential part of it. Um, not to not to get sucked into um, despondency and despair at a um, at a time when that actually is you know like would make from the from the story that we're being told that would make the most sense to get very fearful to get very um, um, yeah just freaked out about everything that's going on and I just remind myself all the time that we can do better than this 
and that keeps me going. And you know, because there is such a huge difference between you know one and a half degrees Celsius of climate change and two degrees, three degrees, four degrees. That nonlinearity is really hard for people to to imagine what that world would be like. And An exponential um, rise too. Yeah, yeah, the exponential rise and the the exponential impacts that you know, like you know, what we've seen now is you know, it's just it's it's dramatic and it, but it, it it's nothing compared to what will happen unless we um, we shift. And that's why for me it's so important to to really work with paradigms, to really think differently, and to challenge myself to like, to to get out of my own way in terms of you know how do we like give ourselves and others the message of mattering, um, literally mattering when it comes to shaping the future. Yeah. yeah, it comes to mind what you're saying, all the different possibilities, but one of the key things to me seems to be paying attention to how we pay attention. You know, are we presencing or are we othering? Are we feeling the connection or are we pushing it away? You know, that's, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, that is like a, it's a, that is a, a practice to hold that awareness and to hold that, you know, like reflexivity. Such a delight to be with you, Karen O'Brien. Thank you so much for your time and your amazing work. And uh, I know our listeners are going to really enjoy uh, hearing about your book and reading your book. You Matter More Than You Think, Quantum Social Change for a Thriving World. And uh, I highly recommend this book and I hope everyone will go out and buy it and uh, be inspired. So thank you. Thank you, Michael. And thanks. It was wonderful to talk to you again. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.